0: Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have J.A. Jantz back on the show with me to talk about her brand new book, Nothing to Lose, uh, a J.P. Beaumont novel. And um, uh, J.A., is this the 23rd uh, Beaumont book?
2: Actually, it's Beaumont number 25.
0: 25 Wow I see I couldn't even get my uh, my number incorrect <laughs>
2: 19 I th- this is actually our 40th anniversary year I didn't start trying to write the first Beaumont book until the fall of 1982 and it came out in 1985 wow. but I had written one book. It was sort of fictionalized true crime, slightly fictionalized true crime, and that book was fourteen hundred pages long, and nobody ever bought it. <laughs> <For good reason. laughs> wow! But I started trying to write that book in the fall, and I gave, I had the, I created a character, I gave him a name, I gave him a job, I gave him a place to live. And then I waited to see what he would do. and It turned out he wouldn't do anything. He was just dead. That story was dead in the water. So I, when March came around of, 19, of 1983, I sent my two grade school age kids to Camp O'Kyla for spring break. And then I sent myself to Portland from Seattle to spend five days with a friend from my days in the life insurance business. But I got on the train with a stack of blue line notebooks and a fistful of pens. And as the train pulled out of the King Street station, I thought, like, what would happen if I wrote this book through the detective's point of view? And so I wrote the words. I got out a notebook, I got out a pen, and I wrote, She might have been a cute kid once. That was hard to tell now. She was dead. In that very moment, all of a sudden I was transported to the backside of Magnolia Bluff in Seattle. I was walking around a crime scene in J.P. Beaumont's shoes. I was seeing what he saw. I was hearing what he heard, what other people said to him. I was hearing what he said to other people. But I was also hearing what was going on in his head. And Beaumont J. P. Beaumont and J. A. Jance have been character and author
0: ever since. That is so amazing. I I, I tell authors all the time that I love to hear um, about the beginnings of things. You know what what is it that triggers a story? Um, because you know the trite question is always where do you get your ideas from? And you know ideas are everywhere. But but there's something about that moment of creation, of that moment of inspiration that just literally makes worlds come alive.
2: Bo has been this living, breathing character for me ever since. I have to write him in first person. And within a matter of a few paragraphs or a page or two of a book, I'm back in his mindset. And in Nothing to Lose, he wakes up to the bad news that There's a plumbing problem in the bathroom.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nothing any of us want to wake up to.
2: Has the presence of mind not to ask his his wife, Mal Soames, (laughs) is she sure? (laughs) (laughs) If she says it, it's true. And he better not contradict her. So in, in just a matter of those few sentences, all of a sudden he and I were back together and, and that's one of the things that makes writing the Beaumont books so much fun—to see his his uh, changing over the years, his growth. Uh, He—I started out with him in 1982. He was a homicide cop in Seattle, and had so at that point there was no DNA, blood evidence could be typed only. Uh, there was no Aphis automated fingerprint identification system. There was no DNA um, catalog. So he's changed through the years, and so has policing. And so he and I have had to change with the times as well. He he went through a period of time when he didn't want to. He reluctantly got a cell phone. He finally got an iPad and a computer, but he (laughs) has been dragged into technology, screaming and kicking. Now he uses his iPad for for crossword puzzles all the time. (laughs) But I I deliberately let him age because I thought, "Ah." I I wanted him to have something that happened in one book continue to impact his life in future books. And that, of course, is the story behind the story in Second Watch, in, not Second Watch, in Nothing to Lose, because this story contains characters that first appeared in Belmont number 14, a book called Breach of, Breach of Duty. And in that book, Bo's then partner, Sue Danielson, died at the hands of her former husband, her abusive former husband. Uh, and Beaumont is dealing with another case at that time, but he knows Sue Danielson's kids. They're her two sons. And when the fight breaks out in the living room, the older child, the older boy, Jared, calls Beau and says, what do we do? And Bo says, take your brother. Go out the window and go to the go to the troll in Ballard and someone will come pick you up, but get out of that house. And and in actual fact, that saved the the boys' lives that night because by the time Bo got there, Sue was shot and bleeding out in the living room. And so he spent years dealing with nightmares about that event and wondering if there was anything he could have done to change the outcome that night. And so when on this morning with his plumbing problem, <laughs> which actually that plumbing problem has, is an echo from my personal life in the world, in, in wonder whether, if you have a large dog, do not make an attempt to flush frozen doggie dew down <laughs> into the morning. That's a very bad idea. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> but when the plumbing problem is, is fixed, there's a knock on the door, and it's Sue Danielson's older son, Jared, come to ask for Bo's help because his younger brother, Chris, is missing and he wants help finding him. So that's that's the beginning of this case and how Bo gets dragged into it. Sue so Danielson's husband's family came from Alaska. And so this takes Beaumont to wintertime, Alaska, and it's a big adjustment for him.
0: <laughs> An Innocent Client, the first book in the Joe Dillard legal thriller series. A preacher is found brutally murdered in a Tennessee motel room. A beautiful, mysterious young girl is accused. In this best-selling debut, criminal defense lawyer Joe Dillard has become jaded over the years as he's tried to balance his career against his conscience. Savvy but cynical, Dillard wants to quit doing criminal defense, but he can't resist the chance to represent someone who might actually be innocent. His drug-addicted sister has just been released from prison and his mother is succumbing to Alzheimer's, but Dillard's commitment to the case never wavers despite the personal troubles and professional demands that threaten to destroy him. Chosen by BookBub readers as one of the top 100 crime novels of all time, get started on this great series with an innocent client where it all started. Read for free with Kindle Unlimited or buy it in paperback or audiobook. An Innocent Client by Scott Pratt. Things We Never Got Over The new book by best-selling author Lucy Score. Bearded bad boy Barber Knox refers to live his life the way he takes his coffee, alone. Unless you count his basset hound Waylon. Knox doesn't tolerate drama even when it comes in the form of a stranded runaway bride. Naomi wasn't just running away from her wedding. She was riding to the rescue of her estranged twin to knock him out Virginia, a rough around the edges town where disputes are settled the old fashioned way with fist and beer, usually in that order. Too bad for Naomi, her evil twin hasn't changed at all. After helping herself to Naomi's car and cash, Tina leaves her with something unexpected, the niece Naomi didn't know she had. Now she's stuck in town with no car, no job, no plan, and no home, with an 11-year-old going on 30 to take care of. There's a reason Knox doesn't do complications or high-maintenance women, especially not the romantic ones. But since Naomi's life imploded right in front of him, the least he can do is help her out of her jam. And just as soon as she stops getting into new trouble, he can leave her alone and get back to his peaceful, solitary life. At least that's the plan until the trouble turns to real danger. Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best selling author Lucy Score. When, um, with such a rich history that you have developed with this character and with the stories that you and this character have told, um, is is this the first time that you've had a callback uh, like that, you know, to. To a story that happened eleven books previous, that that that. It's
2: not, it's not. I did it in the book just before this, a book called "Son: It's Sins of the Fathers," and in that case, the guy who shows up on the on his doorstep is a guy from taking the fifth Beaumont number four, and <laughs> he shows up holding a baby in. An infant carrier. And both said, okay, what's this all about? Well, my first, I spent 18 years of my life with a man who was uh, lacking in being good husband material, but from the point of view of a mystery writer, the guy was a gold mine. He, <laughs> died of chronic alcoholism at age 42, a year and a half after I divorced him. When when I started writing Beaumont, I was writing in the first person. He couldn't work all the time. And so he had to do something when he wasn't working. Well, you're supposed to write what you know, and I happen to know a lot about drinking. So Beaumont did the kind of drinking that I had lived with all those years. And in those early books, he's he's sort of a mess. Um, In the I was doing signings for the fourth book when a a fan came up to me and she said, you know, J.P. Beaumont drinks every day. He has a drink of choice. It's starting to interfere with his work. Does J.P. Beaumont have a problem? And I said, you know, these are books. (laughs) But in the course of that set of signings, six other people asked me the same question. And I finally Figured it out that I had put a portrait of my husband's trouble drinking into the book with such reality because it was real to me that my readers accepted it as real. And the thing that's really interesting is that was invisible to me. I hadn't noticed it until they pointed it out. So Bo goes into treatment. He has his first Undeniable blackout in book seven. He goes into treatment in book eight. This is book 25. So he's been sober a lot longer than he was drinking. But in his drinking days, he did some wild and woolly things. And it turns out that the guy put the baby in, his, uh, in the infancy is the husband of a woman with whom Beaumont back in the day had a one-night stand. And so he has a grandchild he never knew he had because he had from a daughter he never knew he had. So no, this is, I have brought characters back before and it's kind of fun.
0: I bet it is. Um, With, with the Beaumont series being uh, as deep uh, as it is and having such a rich history, you, you also have – and this is very rare for, for an author to have two very long-running series. Um, oh. You also have the Joanna Brady series.
2: I have the Joanna Brady series, and I have the Allie Reynolds series. And and they – the Allie and Joannas are in the late teens, but I think 17 and 8 – books 17 and 18 for each of those. So um, I think – People ask me, well, what keeps me fresh? And I think part of what keeps me fresh is not always writing about the same set of characters. Uh, They're set in different locales, so that gives me a chance to exercise my geography
0: button. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, do you ever worry when when you switch to to writing another series book – do you ever worry that when you come back to Bo, that that it won't be there, that the story won't come, uh, or when you go back to Brady, um, do, you, just does switching that, the, just switching up writing, free you up to to think creatively again, or is there right. ever a concern, you know, that if I leave and and when I come back, they just won't be there?
2: Starting the book is always hell. I can tell you more than sixty books in. That starting a book is awful.
0: Ending a book is usually good. <laughs> you know, some people have the, the opposite uh, opinion that, that starting a book is easy. You know, coming up with a, with a new paragraph is easy, but then, you know, going to, you know, bringing a satisfying ending is the hard part. Uh, but it, it sounds like it's the opposite for you. Oh,
2: well, that's. That's how it has been for me. Right now, I have a book that's giving me some trouble with the ending, but I think I finally got it lit now.
0: Do you, are you a uh, are you a planner uh, or are you you know what we love to call a panzer?
2: Let me. I am a seat of the panzer. I met outlining in Mrs. Watkins' sixth grade geography class at Greenway School in Bisbee, Arizona. I hated outlining then. Nothing that has happened to me in the intervening decades has changed my mind about outlining. So because I write murder mysteries, I usually start with somebody dead or dying and the rest of the book, trying to figure out who did it and how
0: come. How do you manage, um, the, the sheer volume, uh, of stories that you've written? And, uh, yeah, how do you manage the, um, uh, the, you know, kind of the the series Bible, if you will, of of knowing where a character has been, what what some of their character traits are. You know, some of these have gotten to be really elaborate as you've added and added and added to their stories.
2: Well, I I keep a name file and I keep some uh, that runs from book to book, so I can look back in previous name files and see that person first appeared. And I did that for a very re- real reason. I'm, I've become very when I'm doing a book signing I'm I've learned to practice situational awareness because usually an in-person signing there's at least one nutcase and my my least favorite was the guy who came up to me at a book signing and said "Are you the lady who writes mysteries?" and I said yes he said "I've just been acquitted of murdering seven people do you want to write my book?"
0: Oh, uh, oh my goodness
2: no, no. <laughs> So I was doing a signing for a Brady book and I was looking at the people in line and there, there was this couple, a man and a woman, and they were just, they, they had this smug grin look on their, both their faces and I thought, okay, something's up with these guys. Well, when they got to the table, it turned out he, in real life, had the name of one of my fictional characters, which I sometimes I come up with with names that sound right. And it's because I've heard them before without remembering it. So he said he introduced himself and he introduced his wife and he said, did you know that you killed my character off in book number one? And now I'm back in book number eight. Ha! No, I didn't know that. So I went and looked, and sure enough, he was dead as a doornail in book number one. So it took me – it took a couple of books to paint my way out of that corner. I I made the new character by that name be that guy's nephew and namesake, and that's how I fixed it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. We're keeping my name file.
0: That's – That's brilliant. Um, You mentioned earlier when we were talking about how the technology has changed in, you know, in forensics and detective work. As as a writer who is is not a a detective in your day job, how do you stay abreast of of how the technologies are changing? And, you know, you mentioned blood types and DNA and, and all of that stuff. How does a writer kind of stay in in tune with what some of the real possibilities are?
2: I watch a lot of true crime on on ID Discovery. I've followed all of the new genealogical forensic stuff. And I love it when guys who have gotten away with murder for decades suddenly have to start hiding their cigarette butts because <laughs> because all of those thousands of people who learned how to do genealogy for their own family not detectives but they can find people and and i i just think it's wonderful that that so many of them are offering their services to law enforcement agencies to narrow down the suspect pool and find who's still out there who can be identified
0: you uh you mentioned earlier uh you know some of the the character flaws that that Beau has uh accumulated over the years and uh you know there and and in this story in particular you know with the 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 previous death of his partner and now you know that's coming back to him and uh you know he he's involved uh, in this uh not only um you know this professional situation but it has very very real emotional uh attachment to him as well um when writing a character and and making them real uh you know with character flaws like we all have um how does that keep the character fresh and believable uh you know and do you ever struggle with with uh you know one of your characters becoming too much of a Mary Sue too too much of a, uh, a perfect character for lack of a better term.
2: Well, Beaumont, Beaumont gets around. Yeah. <laughs> he has, he's wormed his way into two Joanna Brady books, one of my Walker family books and one of the Ally Reynolds books. And it happens that the Allie Reynolds books belong to a different publisher. The other three all belong to Harper Collins, but Ellie Reynolds belongs to Simon and Schuster. So when I was writing Unfinished Business and knew that they were going to need a cold case investigator in Washington State, I said, well, hell's bells. I've got one right here. Why don't I just use Beaumont? So, (coughs) excuse me, I negotiated a peace treaty with my Editors, so Harper Collins let Beaumont venture into Simon and Schuster territory, sort of, sort of like the Capulets and the Montagues in and Romeo. And, Juliet. and I thought I would write about him in third person because the Allie Reynolds books are told in third person. Well, I got to where Beaumont was supposed to step on stage, and he wouldn't do anything in third person. <laughs> He said, hell no, I won't go. So I went ahead and I wrote him in first person because that's what I'm accustomed to. And that's what Beaumont readers are accustomed to. They're accustomed to walking in his shoes in the stories. So I sent that to my new to my Simon Schuster editor. And she hadn't read any Beaumont books. So when she got to that part, she went through with her little red pen and changed all the first persons back to over to third. And I thought, well, maybe if somebody else does it, it'll be fine. Because they don't let surgeons operate on their own families. Well, then the manuscript came back. And when I got to that part, the Beaumont part in Unfinished Business, suddenly he was a paper cutout. He did, he just, he, he was he he wouldn't do anything he just he didn't he wasn't this living breathing entity that that i've created and so i wrote back to the editor i said sorry i'm changing it back to first person like it or lump it <laughs> but uh, it it's it's interesting that each of the characters have such distinctive voices but one thing one thing is sure Whenever you hear one of the characters' mother speaking, whether it's Bo's mother or Allie Reynolds' mother or Joanna Brady's mother, Eleanor Lathrop Winfield, you can bet you're hearing words I learned at my mother's knee.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Judith, um, as a writer who has been writing professionally since the 1980s, um, how has the technology of writing changed uh, for you you know um, a, a lot of a lot of things have changed since then um, you know from the predominance of typewriters to you know the oh. first uh, home computers to, to now the ubiquity of computers and computing devices how has that how has has that shaped your writing life?
2: the first book I wrote the one that was never published I wrote on legal pads and had paid somebody to type it on my Um Then, between the time I started writing the first Beaumont book and the, and, uh, the, the following spring, my first husband died. And... When I, when I met my first husband, brought him home to meet my parents, my parents looked at him and said, this guy is a raging alcoholic. And I said, oh, you're just teetotalers. What do you know? Well, of course, they were a lot smarter than I was. And I spent years of my life trying to prove them wrong. But when I married the guy, my dad was uh, an all-time life insurance guy. And he made sure that I had a life insurance policy on my husband of which I was both the owner and the beneficiary, $50,000 policy. He died on uh, New Year's Eve of of 1982-83. And in the spring of that year, I had started writing the Beaumont book by hand. But in the late spring, in May, the life insurance benefit came in. And I took $5,000 of that, 10% of it, and invested it in my future as a writing. I bought an Eagle computer, a dual floppy Eagle with 128K of memory. And it wasn't steam-driven, but it was very close. And uh, a daisy-wheel printer. Which was helped print manuscripts on their paper jams at the kazoo.
0: Oh yeah. I had one but, of those,
2: but those I, I invested in myself with 10% of that life insurance policy. And boy, it was, it was a pretty good investment for it, originally. I had a desktop, but by that point I had remarried. I'd gone from being a single parent with two kids to being a married parent with five. And I needed to uh, be able to write. The, the big desktop was down in the basement, and I needed to be able to write closer to the laundry room. So that's when I started using laptops. I had I went through a series of Toshiba laptops, mo- working mostly on WordPerfect. And on the little the little floppy disks, it would take four of those. I would have to package up four of those. To mail a manuscript to New York. Uh, now it's wonderful. All I do is load the manuscript into a PDF and or a file and email it. So things have changed, but and I eventually I had I worked on in WordPerfect for many years, but then my husband revolted against uh, some Microsoft Word update and said, if you go to that. I'm not your IT guy anymore so I became an Apple girl.
0: <laughs> I love it. The new book is called Nothing to Lose the 25th uh edition or the the 25th installment in the JP Beaumont series. Uh JA this is a, we we love the series and we love seeing uh, this character that is maturing and uh, growing with each uh, new installment. Um, we're gonna send everyone to pick up their copy. There's gonna be links to it in the show notes of this episode. If you want to pick it up in hardcover or Kindle edition or audiobook, um, how do you how do you feel about your books being translated to audio? And you know, it's such a huge growth market right now.
2: Well, it is. I. I have some problems with that because my my books are pretty much regionally specific, and so if you get a reader who's never been in Washington, they screw up words like Squim or Walla or or any I mean Snohomish. They they can really mess up some of the geographical names in washington but the same holds true in in arizona when they call saguaros saguaros or gila bend is gila bend so those things those things really grade on me personally but most of my most of my audio readers aren't aren't concerned with that anyway and they just take it for for what it is so Those little details are a problem for me, but I'm really grateful for the audio editions because it allows reading for pleasure to people who might not otherwise have a chance. Truck drivers love my books.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you love audio books, you're going to love this one. That's, we're going to put a link to that as well in the show notes. Um, uh, Judith, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into your amazing back catalog and all that you do, where can they find you online?
2: Well, my, my name is very hard to remember. It's com. That's my website. And I have a blog that posts every Friday morning that's sort of a window on my life that tells what's going on in my world in, in any particular week. And I've been writing that blog for a decade and a half now so it's like reading my autobiography and <laughs> weekly installments <laughs> i
0: love it i love it we'll put links to that as well in the show notes uh this has been so much fun catching up we're going to send everyone to pick up their copy
1: of nothing to lose thank you so much for taking time to come back on the show thank you Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Gleaves' The Jason Crane Series. I was walking through the woods between Wolfert's Roost and the future site of my father's Stone Manor house. The house would eventually stand on what had been old Baltus's pumpkin field, the land where I had found my grandfather's head. Father had chosen the spot for its view of the Hudson River. Knoll was to be a grand mansion in the Gothic Revival style, but at the time the mansion was but a few foundations of Van Brunt Stone. I had become fond of the place already, the idea of it, and I spent many a night alone in a shack on the property. My mother disapproved. She would have me sleep in the room across from hers in our townhouse. But I was fifteen and did not answer to her. I kept a bottle of spirits hidden in the crook of two walnut trees near old Baltus's grave, I thought he would approve of the gesture. I had stopped along my way to fetch it out. At the moment the first pull of liquor touched my throat, I heard a ghastly, inhuman laugh. I was not alone in the woods. Had God sent the horseman after me? Had I sinned that terribly? I ran through the wood and found the field where Noel was to be built. The outline of the foundations was barely discernible beneath the snow. An apparition stood there. Though I have seen him many times since, I shall never forget my first glimpse. Gaunt in moonlight, headless, exuding power and malice. A magic thing in the land of the ordinary. The headless horseman of Sleepy Hollow. What chills those words evoke. It charged at me, hatchet raised. I stood transfixed, unable to move, unable to even imagine escape. This was the servant of God, after all, sent to strike down sinners. I hurled the bottle from my hand, ashamed that I had become a drunkard as Baltus had been. It shattered against the foundations of Knoll. I stretched out my arms and awaited judgment. A piercing white light broke the darkness. The horse reared. Not my Dylan, cried Agatha. Agatha. Appearing from the wood. She held a skull in her hand. It shone brightly as a diamond, and in that moment I understood. The horseman did not serve God, he served my grandmother. Perhaps in that moment I came to see Agatha and God as one and the same. The unholy spirit fought her command. A foreleg of the demon horse struck my head with such power that I fell backwards with a cry and knew no more. I carry the scar to this day, a slight indentation in my temple, barely noticeable. In my days of courting I was told that when I am angry the patch of insulted skull bone will stand out in a disturbing manner. I have never had occasion to see this phenomenon, however, as I am generally well pleased whenever I pass a mirror.